0: <laughs>
1: namaste, motherfuckers. welcome to namaste motherfuckers the only podcast where the worlds of work comedy and well-being collide the podcast where the life-changing stuff happens I'm your host, Callie Beaton, and this episode is called Here Be Dragons, and today's theme is Dragons. There are only two historical globes that actually use the phrase, here be dragons. One is a tiny copper Hunt Lennox globe of 1510, where it's written in Latin over the Eastern coast of Asia, close to Komodo. I won't try and say how you say it in Latin, even though I did study Latin. You've just got to sound at Boris Johnson, sorry. And the other was etched on a globe made from an ostrich egg. The writer, Neil Gaiman said, Fairy tales are more than true, not because they tell us that dragons exist, but because they tell us that dragons can be beaten. There are some Hong Kong skyscrapers that are built with large holes in the middle, which according to local law is to allow dragons to fly through them. And now onto Komodo dragons, a threatened Komodo dragon will vomit to reduce its weight and then make a speedy getaway. I love that, that'd be very handy in the world of online dating. And a female Komodo dragon is the largest animal to be able to reproduce without the need for a male. That would be even handier.
0: No, it's actually my office. It is at home, but I don't work in the house.
1: That's today's guest, Deborah Meaden. Dragon has been in the top 20 most commonly used passwords every year since the internet security firm Splashdata started publishing them back in 2011. I mean, if Deborah's using dragon as a password, I don't think she's the person we think she is. In Chinese astrology, hours as well as years are associated with different animals. Bruce Lee was born not just in the year, but also in the hour of the dragon. And in China, students born in the Year of the Dragon tend to receive higher grades than their non-dragon peers. And finally, from China to Sweden, Stieg Larsson based the central character in The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo on what he thought Pippi Longstocking would look like as an adult.
0: I've been waiting since five o'clock. I wasn't going to miss it again.
1: Deborah Meaden is perhaps most famous for being one of the dragons in Dragon's Den, a role which she took over in 2006. During her time on the show, she's invested multi-millions of pounds of her own money in over 80 different businesses. Her capacity to be an entrepreneur started at an early age. By the time she was seven, she was selling flowers from a stall at the end of her family's driveway. Her first official business took off while she was still in her teens. She was living in Italy where she'd gone to follow a boyfriend. We've all done that bit, but what we haven't all done is when we're over there, launch a business selling luxury ceramics and homeware to high-end stores back in the UK. She went on to work in her family leisure business, discovering along the way that she was a natural bingo caller. She was also a natural business leader and ended up buying her family out. She went on to sell her remaining stake in a deal worth £83 million. She won the hearts of the nation, as if she hadn't already, when she appeared in Strictly Come Dancing with her dance partner Robin. And if you need cheering up of a grey day, you could do a lot worse than spend 90 seconds watching her doing the cha-cha-cha to Aretha Franklin's respect. She's also one of the country's most popular and highly regarded Twitter users, using it as a platform for good and showcasing her strong sense of fairness, ethics and values-led approach to business, politics and indeed life in general. She's the host of The Big Green Money Show and she feels passionately about nature and the environment and the impact that people with money and a voice can have on doing something about it. Deborah and I talked about nature, animals, balance, business, boots, suits, bingo calling, butlins, single mums, family businesses, dragon's den, strictly money, mistakes, and the legendary Kenyan elephant Mountain Bull. But I started by asking her about her episode of Desert Island Discs.
0: it was a lovely thing to do desert I don't know if you've done desert island discs I have not I'm far it- too weenie a minnow in oh the pool sure it's same. a lovely lovely thing to do um because it actually makes you stop and think you know what is important to me because you sometimes we kind of buzz through life and don't really get to sort of evaluate the things that really really matter and desert island Discs sort of gave me that moment to stop and think and and uh, and actually yeah um I've always had a love of nature and the outside, which has been difficult to marry with my career in business because I also love business. But a lot of that takes place indoors, you know. So it's been – I have had to manage that really, really well. I'm not a very nice person when I've been indoors too much. (laughs) I need to to get out. You know, I need some fresh air. I need some space. And And I'm not at all a stressed person. Because I think I managed that balance between, you know, being sort of head down in front of a screen and really, really busy, um, talking to people inside all the time and actually getting that thinking, Do you know, I need to get outside now. I need to breathe. I need to get that air in
1: my lungs. It's funny, the um since I've had a dog, which everyone who listens to this will have heard me bang on about, but having to find the time to take him for a proper walk you know, at least one really decent walk and another one at some point. And I'm like, oh yeah. and I, I run as well, which is all about nature rather than smugness or gyms. And there's just something about it. It's like, um, it's like sort of the washings all jumbled up in the machine. And you, by the time you come back from a walk, it's all neatly on the line. This is a metaphor. No one's actually done my washing, uh, but it's a lovely, sadly, but it's a lovely thing, isn't it? And it's a sort of, it's a proper spring clean of your brain and your spirit and your soul.
0: Yeah. And I actually, um, I think it's a business issue. I have, I don't function well. People kind of expect me to get up really early in the morning and i be on it. I don't get up. I don't wake up till about eight 30 naturally. And I let myself wake up. So I wake up at half past eight, I wander downstairs. I always, you might've heard me say this, but I always, um, grab a cup of tea and I go outside. Doesn't matter what the weather is. I go out barefoot. That's the, my first thing every day, you know, it sort of connects me to the world. Um, because actually, I don't function very well before half past 10, 11 o'clock. I'm not at my best. So why would I force this kind of, you know, the, the mediocre me into an environment when I need to be bringing my A game? So uh, it's, it's, it's not, not just about me loving nature. It's about me also understanding that why fight against the natural me? I I need when I, I need to be doing my difficult stuff when I'm at my best. And that is not at eight o'clock in the morning, and it's not, you know, having had no fresh air or
1: getting outside. It's out there barefoot, stroking a horse, which is yes. a lovely. <laughs> it's a lovely image. <laughs> I tell you what, though, you wouldn't want to do that in Kentish Town either, wander out there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's a, it's a oh, I just shit. seen the loveliest. Have you seen Concrete Cowboys? I have. Yeah, isn't, isn't been it wonderful? Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we'll put a link. But nice. I love because I love the um. The whole idea of presenteeism and, you know, you've been in business a little bit longer than me. I probably got into sort of whatever serious business in about 10 years after you chronologically. And it's just got imp- almost impossible not to over-present and over-attend and think, well, I, I shouldn't really switch off at that point of the day. And I should really feel guilty if I walk and get a coffee rather than quickly making one while I'm on a call. Whereas actually the luxury item is the bit in between the bit where you're replenishing yourself, isn't it? And I think we've gone a bit asked about face as a working world and certainly working for Americans for many years, you know, big Hollywood studios. People sort of wore it as a badge of honour, working all hours, not taking their vacation, having a three-week maternity leave. And I thought, what a horrific way to celebrate yourself as a person when actually you're missing your actual life in favour of business. I so I so agree with that. I think it is changing though. I think the generations
0: coming up now um, want to do want their lives to be the way they want their lives to be. So that you know, there's much more flexibility around business. There's a much greater casualness about business. You know, when I was when I was coming through business, it was you know I had to wear the suit. I had to look like we I all was had in the business. suits,
1: didn't we? And remember oh. the
0: suits. Oh you know and, and actually if you look even on dragon's den when i first started on dragon's den they put me in this pinstripe suit i have actually to be fair i've never worn a pinstripe suit in my life um it was so not me my hair was really you know very sharp um and i just i just thought it's just not me you know and and again I, it's a real business issue i think when you are allowed to connect with yourself and be yourself in business people get that they like authenticity you know they they i don't i don't have to be a perfect presenter i just have to be authentic i don't you know i just have to people i want people to know that i mean what i say you know um and i think and therefore i think actually being able to be yourself in business is really
1: really important and that includes what you wear it's uh, and this is us talking to each other I'm in a crappy jumper because it's cold you're looking very stylish and a sort of a uh, leisure kind of you look tiktok ready I'll be honest with you just it's, so uh... you know
0: <laughs> this smells of horses just so you know thank you very much for saying that but this is my warm go out
1: and put the horse rugs on top well luckily zoom doesn't do 4d yet so I'll take your word for it but you're looking you're looking sharp but I think um in terms of that whole What's interesting, isn't it, when you talk about kind of authenticity and vulnerability and all these kind of words that are much used in business forums, you can almost fake those things, too. You see, I just had a briefing call with a massive American company. shall will remain nameless. And they were talking about authenticity in the least authentic way I've ever heard anyone speak about anything <laughs> with not a trace of irony. And you, you, it's really interesting to see somebody who not only comes across in a way that is confident, you take life by the throat and you get on with it and you stand up for what you think is what you believe in. But I i, I remember reading you um, describe yourself as unnaturally confident um, in something a few years ago. <laughs> and I just love the fact that what you see really is what you get, which is very often not the case. So where, where does that? Where does that unnatural
0: confidence come from? I have honestly no idea. I um, I I think, um, so my mother had a very tough time when I was young, and so I saw somebody in really really dire straits. So um, she'd left my father. She was on her own with two kids, no support around. her. The family stopped talking to her. Um, and I saw somebody, bit, uh, sort of rock bottom, um, uh, just just build their way out of it. So it kind of wasn't scary for me. And then I. I think as I grew up, my parents just had an expectation. You know, there wasn't a, there was no doubt at all that 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 the, the girl, there's four girls that we were going to build our own lives and we were going to be successful. And I think that expectation sort of built an expectation in me as well, and and also my mother's situation. It's like, well, how 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 hard can it be? And if it does get hard then I'll just build my way out of it you know so I I mean I don't I actually don't know I don't think a lot about that it's only when people it's only when you ask me um that that I, that I do but I do I know that I'm it's a it's quite a gift um, it's
1: a huge gift it's confidence a huge because
0: it you know and and it allows me to to be me because it you know it it, it doesn't bother me that people see me in the round you know that they see the, the good, the bad, the, you know, as long as it's the me, as long as it's me.
1: And do you think when, when, in, when you've got that kind of expectation or that stuff around you, because your mum was a, a single mum, I know, young, right, 22, I think she was looking after yeah. two two little yeah. girls. Yeah. And so you were also being looked after by another family while your mum was really working hard to support you. So that's a that, that could be a tough start for somebody. But out of that, you've come out of here... Resilient. You've obviously got a mum who you loved, still love, who was a great role model to you, at, at no inconsiderable cost to herself. I'm guessing at that time in her life.
0: Absolutely, uh, and also the family that we went to live with. I mean, they had they were lived in the smallest nine Belfield Avenue, Brightlingsea.
1: And it's going to be it, it like it the Beatles a tiny... tour now. Everyone's going to be going on the Deborah Meaden <laughs> tour, and taking photos outside. You'll of course have havoc.
0: It was a tiny little house. I think they had two bedrooms and a box room, and they had three daughters of their own. And they took Gail and I on. Um, and we never Gail and I both talk about it now. Gail's my older sister. We both talk about it. So we never ever felt that we were treated differently to the daughter. So we used to get bunty comics, and it would go to the oldest first, and it went down in age. It wasn't about, you know, their children would get first choice and we'd get second choice. Um, and I think so. I think that mum chose really well. You know, she had no choice. We had to go and live with the family because she was trying to earn money um and uh and she, she chose really really well so again i think that moving around and we moved around quite a lot when we were small it actually made us very very resilient you know it doesn't worry me walking into a new environment at all but i quite like it well i do like it um so i, I you know i think it it can, it can either knock you or it can you know I, in my case i think it actually just added to my confidence i just kept thinking well
1: you Know what's the worst that can happen? And are you still in touch with um, it's Auntie Angela and Uncle Derek, right? Those were your yeah, oh, are gosh, they you are well researched, I yes, mean, very well. Re- <laughs> no, I sp- particularly um, research the- people, I genuinely find inspirational. Um, and you're in that category for sure. So, are you still in? Are they still with us? Are they what are they no, up to? They, they were they were old. they were older than my parents then so and no, five they're, they're girls passing bunty around that would shove, shove anyone off this mortal coil wouldn't it that's <laughs> exhausting <laughs> too much for any lovely doting couple so you had um and I know you I want to talk about your bingo calling because I believe that when people say to me you're really brave being a stand-up I'm like oh no bingo calling you're at the absolute front line <laughs> but in the intervening years you and I have a couple of things in common um, boarding school and the west country so I also went to boarding school similar time frame to you in terms of my age and I found it extremely difficult and it did not suit me and I've never wanted a bus, and I certainly did not want a bus that was a boarding school Um, and I but tell me your your experience of boarding school at a similar age to when I went.
0: Oh actually that's really interesting that you that your response to boarding school was really quite similar to mine so I was too young I was seven when I went to boarding school it's, it's, it's very young but I also again now as a gr- at the- time I, I I hated it now as a grown-up I understand it was a good you know it was a good choice it gave us stability when my mother was still trying to build a life for us. So I she had met her new partner by then, had she said you met she'd, your dad, yes, Brian, by then, yeah, only yeah. just. So you know, so there was, you know, that it was all all a little bit shaky. I I expect, I mean, I mm-hmm. feel that, but I expect that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, there's so much that I just don't suit boarding school. I don't take instruction very well. I don't like rules. I don't like restrictions. Um, I I was that really annoying child at school, as a, that asked why all of the time. I mean, I can imagine I was a, I was really awkward, um, and I was incredibly homesick. And I don't think it was just for my parents; it was for the freedom to do what I wanted to do. I couldn't stand, you know, the, these this rich, I still I'm exactly the same now. I'm not a very planned person, and I can't stand this. I know what I'm going to be doing for the next term, you know. It, I just just didn't suit me.
1: I completely agree. I I used to see I was in rural Dorset that I was brought up in the grounds of a boys boarding school where I went as a day girl. um, And it was pretty much still just a boys' school. Which school was it? Port Regis near Shaftesbury. Oh, no, I don't know it. And then um, and then I went to Claysmore, which you might Claysmore near Blamford um, for a year. But I remember in uh, Claysmore, it was near the um, near the main road. I say main road. It's just a Dorset road that had some cars on. It wasn't like a motorway or an A road. And I would watch the cars driving when we were playing like lacrosse or whatever horrible things we did. And I used to just look longingly and think there's a person in a car driving somewhere on their own with the freedom of choice that I would like. And it was it it felt it did feel not far off prison to me being put in a
0: boarding school and me. And me I mean you it sounds like you and I had exactly the same feeling it's just and I and I don't know what your response to it now is but I really um rail against too much structure in my Life. completely and
1: yeah. i yeah you rebel against you i sometimes think i'm the boss why am i rebelling the things i rebel against the things i've set myself as a challenge i'm like no you are the boss you chose this stop rebelling
0: that is very true as well poor old charlotte who actually i've managed my diary for me you know I, I and then it fills up and then i'm like why am i doing all this stuff it's because you asked me to put it
1: in you know it's just like i know it is and there's something about the um you know we you vote with your feet and come up with a sort of structure of a job that you like but those tendencies you know you didn't get where you are I wouldn't compare my success in business with yours Um, but you you don't get to be as successful as you've got you don't get to be in boardrooms in media as I was quite young unless there's something in you that's massively driven and it may not be that we want anyone else to plot our trajectory or that we're even consciously doing it but my god we're we're heading towards it, right? It's Like a force yeah, of nature. Yeah, that's
0: it, It's true. And I say I'm not a plan. And I'm not a planned person. You know, I do, of course, my businesses have business plans. But I've always said to people, you have a business plan and you know damn well that that is not what's going to happen. But it gives you a map to adjust what, you know, to adjust your behavior because, oh, that's not working. That is working. Um, so, so, but to me, the most important thing is the flexibility. And, and the best things that have ever happened to me in life have just blindsided me. They've come out of... Absolutely. You know, and, it, and it's because I've got my head up and I'm watching and I'm looking for opportunity. What I haven't done is got my head down following a map and not looking around me. And I think that's, you know, you're probably it sounds to me like you're probably the same as that. You know, it's 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 um, of course, there's got to be some structure in everybody's life, but it's
1: not going to box me in and stop me from doing things that I want to do. I think if you're curious, I'm sort of nosy and curious, and I've got good role models in my my now, sadly, not with this grandmother um, on my dad's side and my dad, they'll both sort of, they want to engage with the world. It takes forever to get anywhere with either of them because they want to talk to everyone and hear about everything. But I think if you're curious and if your world gets bigger as you get older, as you're willing to keep letting the world in, that's an enormous privilege. And that's where you get your energy to reinvent from, right? It doesn't all come from within. That is so true, and, and and
0: curious and interested in people. Mm. You know, I mean, some I'll talk to some people, and and uh, um, P- Paul, my husband, is exactly the same. You know, he loves people. I love people. He loves people, um, and we go out and we'll hardly talk to each other, and we'll come back together <laughs> and we'll go. Well, so and so's done this, and so and so's done that. Did you meet that person? And we, you know, and then I'll speak to other people, and they haven't. They don't know anything about these people that they've just spent an entire night with, and I think. Well, what's the point? <laughs> Why'd you go out and not, you know,
1: what, to tell them about you, I guess? I don't know. I completely agree. It's also a superpower I find when I do after dinner speeches and things and people never, they never think I'm the speaker. They just assume I'm someone's wife or girlfriend and no one really talks to me. And I find it a real superpower to be able to genuinely listen and learn yeah. and then be the one who gets on stage with the microphone. It's like, yeah, you wouldn't know I'm here to speak. Do you have to ask me anything? Um, not that I try and use it as a trick, but it's a handy one, um, underestimate. Estimate us at your peril. But in terms of the um, so something you and I also have in common is that we just sort of set up uh, being on. We became entrepreneurial quite young. I was selling ice creams off an ice cream van in the at the army barracks of Salisbury Plain before I had a driving license. So oh illegal gosh. ice cream van lady uh, when I was uh, seven, nearly seventeen. Um, On a commission only basis. So you lived for selling a Vionetta to an old lady because you weren't getting much of the sort of penny milk bars or whatever they were. But you ended up at 19 setting up a much more sophisticated business than mine, albeit it didn't quite end as you wished it to (laughs)
0: It didn't. And and you say it's sophisticated. Its reason wasn't very, I mean, I had a boyfriend who went over to Italy and I followed him. I'm I'm not sure that's, that's a very sound reason to go over. And actually what happened, I went over to Italy and then I ran out of money. I mean, it was, it was, and then I had to do something. So uh, I don't know how sophisticated that is, but it but it was in. He was a graphic designer. Um, he was very in with the sort of fashion set. So I guess that side of it took me into a dis, you know sort of design. I mean, it, it was um, it was very very beautiful um, objects for the home. Um, but uh, yes,
1: that bit sophisticated, but certainly not the reason. So the model though of trying to do that and being able to go into that world of sort of high-end ceramics, high-end sort of homewares and be brokering deals between Italian production companies and owners of businesses. And I dare say there would have been some personalities and egos involved and then dealing with, I guess, what the Heels, Harvey Nichols, sort of high-end stores in this country. So that takes, I mean, that takes unnatural confidence in a 19-year-old, I guess. I think it does, but I think it's because I didn't,
0: I didn't, and I still don't know what I can't do. You know, I always, I always think, well, just give it a go. (laughs) Just just, just do it and see what happens. Um, But that does rely on, on you meeting some pretty good people in your life. And I have been very fortunate um, that I've, you know, I've had some really, you know, the the guy from Steffanel when I walked into Steffanel at twenty one or twenty or twenty one years old, and convinced him to give me one of the first Steffanel franchises. That wasn't just down to me; that was down to him. You know, he was also willing to take a chance, and it was the same with those Italian businesses. You know, they obviously saw something, but they also were willing to take a chance. So it is that isn't one sided. And I do remember people who who opened
1: the door for me didn't put a wall up. But that does take two. There's definitely something in you that allows that even to be a possibility. Someone might have the door ajar and you work your way through it. But there's definitely something about being able to be plausible and having that self-belief at that relatively young age. I mean, now we look back at 19-year-olds and you know 17 year old in my case and you realize quite how young we were there's something about um there is something about knowing what you don't know there isn't there I've always thought you don't need to pretend you know everything just find the person who does and Uh how brilliant to give that person an opportunity to come to the table
0: you and I living parallel lives with (laughs) parallel thoughts (laughs) (laughs) I am never the expert in the room you know if I'm sitting Sitting in a room full of people, I want to know who knows more than me. You know, I, I don't want to be the person who sits there and well, I'm wasting my time if I'm just sitting there knowing it all. You know, I always want to know who the expert in the room is and I want to listen to them. Well, right now the
1: expert in the room is you because we're talking about you, so you can own that on this one. You don't, <laughs> there's no one better at this than you. And is there – Um. so going from that to – and that didn't end well, right, because it's, it's really when people – I always say now that I'm a comedian, you know, you don't learn as much from a good gig as you do from a bad gig, which is absolutely true. And, the, you know, the top 10 leaderboard of horrendous gigs are what have made me whatever people now think I am, but not totally atrocious at it. And I guess that first experience. So how did that 19 year old's tenacious dream play out business wise then?
0: Um, I, so I think the biggest thing I learned was um, to call it a day. So I could have I had them. I had these guys under contract. So what I saw, I started seeing the goods appearing into Harvey Nichols and Harris without coming through me. So I had the guys under contract and I could so easily have spent, you know, the rest of my life fighting them. And I just thought, not this isn't the one. Life is too short for this. So I think it taught me a huge amount. And you're so right. Um, we have to get things wrong to get things right. You know, I learned so much. I am so glad I did that. I would not be the person that I am today if all of my businesses had been just a huge success, you know, because I wouldn't have the resilience. I wouldn't have had to pick myself up. I wouldn't know how to find my way around these things. So, so yeah, I, I learned an, awful lot from that and I had a great you know a fantastic experience I loved business I hated getting it wrong but I tell you something else that I don't do I really don't like getting things wrong and I beat myself up over it for about 30 seconds and then and I take the lessons from it and then I don't carry it around me within a sack in a sack and I think that's a really important thing because I see people, and you feel like, oh, you are weighted down with every single mistake you've ever made. You know, I, I, it's it that that's done. Just take take the take the learnings. You know, and I hate that. Oh, let you know, take the learnings and move on. But it is true. You know, learn stuff from it. Think I don't want to do that again. <laughs> I don't want to make that mistake again.
1: You know, and get rid of it. Just don't carry it around with you. Yeah, and a lot of that stuff won't matter in our rocking chairs at the end of our days. It will just be detail the stuff that feels a lot. There's a, there's a comedy thing that they say, uh, you're never as, uh, as good as your best gig or as bad as your worst gig, which I think is another thing you can apply to life because we're very willing to let life pat us on the back for the victories and say we're amazing, um, but we're probably not as good as the celebrated, fated version of ourselves, but we're also not an abject failure. We're something, yeah. we're muddling along, aren't we, um, in a hot mess in between. Well, I am anyway. No, <laughs> so I like that. I like that. That is that is absolutely right.
0: Because you have moments of brilliant, you know, you do have moments of brilliant. There's times when I thought, bloody hell, I didn't know I could do that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then you get moments of, oh, bloody hell. That was. I tell you what I do say, though, Callie, I, I know when I've done a good job and I know when I've done a bad job. Mm-hmm. And I think women in particular, and I very rarely talk about gender differences, women in particular find it really hard to say, I did that really well. I give myself the right to say that because I will also say, oh my God, I was shit. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. you know, yeah. I, I, I feel like I can, could, I could, because I'll talk about my range, not, not just, I don't come home to, you know, Paul will say to me, how'd it go today? I'll go, uh, oh, I wasn't very good, actually. You know, uh, and that, I think, gives you the right to also say, do you know what? I was bloody brilliant.
1: Yes, I think it does. And celebrating the wins because they we, we spend so much time chasing the next thing, whether we're planning to or we're not. It's really hard to stop in the moment and say, actually, right now, sun on my face, dog on the end of his lead, walking through this wood or whatever. This yeah. is this is it. This is how it doesn't feels. It doesn't get better. Yeah, doesn't it get doesn't better. get better. Namaste, I'm fascinated by your bingo calling because it seems to me to have a lot in common with what I do as a stand-up comedian. I don't know if you've ever thought about giving that a go, but as a bingo caller... We did gigs in bingo venues after lockdown. um, A couple of comedians who I love had an entrepreneurial idea, which is we'll we'll work with bingo halls and we'll put on stand-up there. So when the bingo finishes, we'll use the hall for stand-up and we'll do a gig. Well, the downside was A, all the tables are fixed to the floor and they're not in the configuration of a stand-up gig. And B, the only people who stay on after bingo are the ones who didn't win because the ones who won are off having a bloody good time. So you've got disgruntled bingo losers (laughs) sitting far away from each other in a brightly lit room. So it didn't work for me as a comic. I've done a few of them. But tell me about your bingo calling days. It was a, in it was in Butlins, right? Minehead Butlins? Minehead Butlins, yeah. yeah. I absolutely, I
0: loved it. I think it taught me more about business than I have ever learned. Because you are, well, you know, you're in direct contact with your customers. They are very happy to tell you when they're happy and when they're not happy. Um, it taught me time is money. So this is prize bingo, not cash bingo. So you're describing a cash bingo haul. This was prize bingo. So you win a little ticket and you get to choose some prizes. And I I did everything from buying all of the prizes, um, you know, thousands of little Italian... Gondolas, all those Russian fish. You remember the Russian of course, fish? I remember the, the Russian, Russian fish? fish. Yeah. yeah. Um, so is to buy all of those. I used to, so it taught me buying and um supply chains. It taught me how to really, really listen to your customer, how to and how to gauge before the customer knows. You know, that you you must do this with, with stand-up comedy all the time. You've got to sense the room, haven't you? And you've got to move away from it when you know, yeah, hold on a minute. That's I'm going a bit too fast or I'm you know I'm 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 talking about something I don't want to talk about because you've got to you know in between the games you've got to have a chat with them so um and also it I tell you the most powerful lesson it ever le- taught me was um the power of recognition i used to be the first stop people used to come year after year to mine head i did it for three or four years and by year 2 they would drop their luggage and they would come in and they'd walk through the door and I'd say, oh, hi, how are you? Lovely to see you back again. And the power mm. of recognising people and and remembering even the smallest, how's your daughter? She had a baby yet? You know, and, and that has really helped me. I think
1: that's really helped me through life. And that is curiosity as much as it is memory, because if you hadn't been interested to ask, you wouldn't have been able to listen and you wouldn't have been able to remember. Well,
0: you're right. And actually, you, you do remember to, I I know people who, who are very good at asking the
1: questions, they don't retain the answers. Exactly. I always talk about listening to learn as opposed to listening to respond, which is something my autistic son's sort of learnt by rote. But I think we can all learn that. Yeah. It's um, I, when I used to run kind of sales divisions and we used to go to like trade fairs in Cannes and we'd all write up our sales notes and our business, you know, what the deal was. And I always in my Rolodex as them was on the cards for the contact details, I would always have a word or two of their language because I run an international business. So word or two that I knew of the language, hello, or well, thank you. And any little things they told me about their dog, their partner, their mum dying, not cynically, but because I really, I had thousands of clients and I really wanted when I went out to camp six months later, To be able to genuinely say, oh, you told me your dad wasn't well, how's that going? And I think that, honestly, I swear to God, that was more important than writing down the deal notes that I'd made. I agree with you. I think people, you know, people, because you became, it became personal.
0: Mm. And once it becomes personal, you get this, this connection that you can't, you can't possibly get just from sitting across the table and negotiating. Yeah. You know, it's it, it, it beca- as I said, becomes real, it becomes personal.
1: And do you, in terms of real and personal, um, Dragon's Den, you have quite a, an intimidating interrogatory style. Who do I? Um, n- not in a, I, well, I don't know, if intimidating is maybe not the word, but it's quite, it's, it's thorough. You're thorough. You take no prisoners, you don't suffer fools. I think that's the way to do it, to say it maybe. Maybe intimidating is not the right word. And w- on Dragon's Den, what is your, what's it like to be pitched to, first of all, as a dragon? Because obviously what we see on television is a minute fraction of what you endure sitting in that chair.
0: Yeah, so I, first of all, I love it because it's what I do on television. So, so I'm already sitting in the, um I, I you probably know this, but I took some persuading to do. It. I didn't really want to be on TV. I mean, it feels really odd now because I love it. But, but at the time I was really wasn't sure. But once I sat in that chair and realized, actually, this is what I do in real life. It's as close as you're going, it's on telly. so it's not exactly what happens in real life but it's as close as you're going to get so the first thing is I love it and the day I don't I'll stop um and I am again genuinely interested you get these you get pictures come in they take up to I think the longest one I've ever been and is three and a half hours so you learn an awful lot more about somebody um when they're pitching to you than than you get to see but obviously a lot of the questions are repeated and they're dull, and you can't make a TV show of just the same questions over and over again. So, what Dragons do is bring the highlights out. So, so I I I thoroughly enjoy it, and I also I've never had any media training. And I did say when I went into Dragons, do you, do you want me to have media training? They said no, we want a direct connection between how you're feeling and what comes out, and that's exactly what happens with me. You know, if somebody if somebody gets something wrong, then that's fine as long as they don't try to bullshit um, but if i sense for a second that somebody's trying to hide stuff or bullshit and i can't trust them that's when you start seeing me get get my heckles up like, hold on hold on about am i having that hold on hold on let's go back to what you just said um so so i think you just you
1: see my my natural reaction
0: you know I so think. it's
1: okay for people pitching to not know the answers but it wouldn't be okay for them to pretend that they do is that the
0: just say i don't know yeah yeah i don't know everything You know, you don't. However, you and I know that there are three numbers you probably should know in business. One is your turnover. What is your margin? What's your net profit? Now, that is unforgivable not to know those because those are just that's just like bread and butter stuff. Um, So there are certain things but I think you don't have to be an accountant, but you can't run a business if you don't fundamentally understand how business works. So so I do get a little bit testy over some really simple stuff that they don't know, unless and I've invested in a guy who is autistic, unless you stand there in front of us and say, I'm really rubbish at numbers. And I'm not really very good at business. And that's really why I'm here. But this is what I've got. You know, just be honest. Just be honest. Oh, I would have invested in that person. That's a
1: refreshing oh, brilliant. degree of honesty. He's
0: absolutely brilliant. And Are he's you still invested?
1: Are you still invested in him? Still yes. working with yeah? him? Yeah, and we
0: just signed a big deal in the states. I mean, you know, a multi-million dollar deal in the states. And, and and when he came into the den, I think he was turning
1: over sixteen thousand pounds. And I am so chuffed for him. It's brilliant. And what's the difference between because you ran businesses, you, you ended up working in the family business, and then buying the family business out but from what I have gathered not with any sweetheart deals you were very much bidding against the competition who were not sitting around the same Christmas dinner table so how how was that to go through
0: um it was so I think I'm it was it it was hard. I mean, I won't pretend it wasn't. It's it's quite testing on a family relationship. But I think the good thing about our family is we had always, always maintained, you look after the business, the business looks after you. What goes on in the business goes on in business, what goes and and you don't take it out. Um, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't come onto the Christmas table. That's all right, theoretically, but I wouldn't say that there weren't moments when I thought I'm your daughter, more than anybody else, you know? Um, so, so yeah, there were some testy moments, but, but in the coolness, you know, and we had two set, we had different advisors, um, and they were, they were, they were mildly startled. <laughs> <laughs> a couple of moments <laughs>
1: they're still dining um, out on that at their christmas dinners
0: <laughs> but and the cold light of day when you go, so so you 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 know what it what it can be like with family sometimes an emotion rushes in that you didn't expect to happen and and once that emotion is allowed to go and dissipate then it just becomes a negotiation again and i think it's when those emotional moments rushed in one or other of us had to just say, right, hold on, just hold, just stop, just hold on a second. um so so and, and you know, and I love I love my parents dearly,
1: so it it has obviously worked out. but it was quite testing. And presumably, what age were you when you concluded that buyout of the family business? Um, 40. Ooh. Three? So, kind of early midlife, and presumably it was a, you know, your parents had a very, very successful leisure business. Presumably, we're talking multi millions that you probably didn't have. So, you lots were lots of millions your, that yeah. I didn't
0: have that I had to convince people the bank to lend me. Um, and uh, it was quite a, you know, it was so, so actually, that's a really good question, Callie, because it's also quite a scary moment. You know, mm-hmm. it was a very risky thing for me to do. I was borrowing an awful lot of money. Um, so, that kind of raised the, uh, there was a lot of tensions and relationships going on while the deal's going on because, you you know, you're kind of trying to keep your funders happy over here. You're trying to you negotiate your best deal you possibly can with your family over, over there, you know. So, yeah, there, there's a lot. Of, but that's business. You know, I'm not complaining about
1: that. That's business. It is business, but you have to hold your nerve and it is harrowing at that point. And and one of the hardest things is keeping emotion out of negotiation. We all know the theories, you know, step away, we will get emotional. You can't think straight, but it's quite hard to do that at the best of times in business and doing that with your family isn't, isn't the easiest. But going from that, obviously successful in buying the company, successful in managing it, successful in selling it. Now you're an investor, you've got a sort of horrible phrase, but kind of portfolio career, you do lots of fascinating things and have work-life balance to whatever degree we can all manage it day to day and hour to hour. But what is the difference then between running a business and being an investor? Because it strikes me they're quite they're quite different kind of lives to choose. Completely different. And actually it was quite difficult for me to understand that at
0: the beginning because I'm a doer. And if I miss anything, it's actually um, – doing the things that I talk about. So, so when I, you know, if you're actually, if you run a business, you're involved in the day-to-day issues of the business, you're motivating all of your team, you're making sure you've got the right team around you. As an investor, I'm very much a sounding balls and strategic advisor, but I consider my role, particularly with the Dragon's Den investments, because they're often baby investments and they actually want a little bit more than a strategic advisor, which they could probably get from somebody else. I always say that I shouldn't be running your business for you, but I am there to stop you I'm not even there to stop you making mistakes because you've got what we talked about it earlier, you've got to make mistakes or you're not trying hard enough. What I am there is to stop you making catastrophic mistakes and to show you the way to bring the best out in your business. So so I would say as a drag as an investor, I'm probably a bit of an investor plus. Because what I never do is put my cash in and walk away and say, there you go, tell me when i made millions. And I, I always say, right, what is it that I can do for this business? What is it that you need, think you need? Because I might have my own view on what somebody needs. What is it that you think you need? Can I bring
1: that? Okay, if I can, then let's do it. So you've invested, again, this is what I've read in the press, you may tell me this is absolute um, bollocks, but um, I think the figure that was quoted for you last year was 63 businesses to the value of well over 3 million. I don't know how much that tallies with your view of what you've actually invested. That's very out of date.
0: Um, So I think I've invested nearly 6 million and i think it's nearly 80 businesses or it might be 80 businesses so um yeah so so yeah that, that that's well that's on dragons I obviously have uh, investments outside but that, that's on dragons
1: and that's since so you joined the series you joined them in series three uh nearly 20 years ago now right so 2006 so of those 80 businesses What's the dream? I mean, the dream scenario, I imagine, as they become enormously successful, you can be very hands off. And it's. it's I'm sure that's the minority that that happens. But what's your outside of that kind of magical thinking outcome? What is it you're hoping to see then in those fledgling businesses that you Um, So, So I'm very fortunate in that. uh, And I probably have a different approach to
0: other investors. I do believe how much is enough. And I actually have enough money to live the lifestyle that I want to live. So my criteria for investing is about what output do I want? And that output might just be, actually, this is a great investment. This is a really good person. I can put some money in. I re- They don't need a lot of my help. I can put that sort of stepping stone cash in. And I'm sure they'll do very well. Or it can be. Somebody says, "I want a lifestyle business. I don't have to make millions out of my Dragons Den investments." You know, Martin that I talked about, the um, the guy who came in, who was aut- came in with his wife actually, um, who is autistic. Um, you know, he didn't really know what he wanted, and I and I felt that he needed some help understanding what he wanted from his business as well. You know, and I could help him do that. What What do you want your business to do? And I'm happy and satisfied. I've done my job if i can answer that question and actually it's the first question i ask what do you want out of this business and if i've answered that question then i've done my role as an investor and and it's more about what they want from the business provided i'm happy you know provided that makes sense to me um what do they want from the business okay i get that that's we'll do that we'll sort that out and it might change as that you know some people want to be you know they want to take over the world and then when they realize what it takes to do that they think actually no thank you very much I just I want to run a really nice business and have a really nice lifestyle and that's fine too but my job is to work that out and make sure that we end up getting where we thought we were going to go in the first place or or adjusted because they've realized they want to do something different
1: so it's quite a bespoke ethical way to you're, you're not being kind of mercenary, you're not looking at just the kind of the bottom line, it's the opposite approach, which I guess, you've got the, um you know, the big green money show, you're known to be a very ethical investor. um It matters to you what footprint we leave in the world and what your business endeavours would say about you and your legacy, I guess. And is that has that always been the case that you've been a, a principled business person for whom those things really matter or, or is it something that's kind of crept on it uh, up upon you as the world's gone to hell in a handcart the last few years so
0: i'd like to think i was principled i've always been principled mm-hmm. because if something hasn't felt right then i i can't i i want to be able to sleep at night you know i i just want to be able to be comfortable with myself i am comfortable with myself and i'm comfortable with myself because I'm not saying I've always got it right, but when I have got it wrong, I've corrected it. You know, I, if I if I wrong somebody, I will. I'll tackle it. You know, I'm so, I'm really sorry I got that wrong. Um, so so I'm not saying I, I'm a I'm a different person now. I understand my ethics better. I understand my passions better now. But I think I've always been principled. I've always worried about the environment. I did a thesis when I went to Brighton College um, on climate change. So this was forty. 5 years ago mm-hmm. you know so i've always been worried about climate change i think now that we know what that actually now it's actually here and now we know what it means and we've run out of time it's sort of moved from this background feeling to thinking i'm sorry i absolutely can't do that because that is really not very good for the environment so i think it's come forward a little bit but i think um it's it's on the basis of the fact that i've always wanted to be comfortable with myself you know and you can do that you know I've got I, I haven't always had enough money but now I've got enough money to be able to say I don't want to do that and I do want to do that and I you know I don't understand I genuinely do not understand people who are incredibly wealthy who don't have a set of standards to work or invest against because I think those are the people who can really really change the world it really really worries me when people just want to make more money Why? <laughs> it's interesting. Sure, this, you want to do something, you know, sure, you want to change the world with it or make things
1: better, or surely. And also, you're never going to have enough if that's your attitude because never. you'll always find a way to live outside of your means, no matter what those means are. I, I've other? always found that I've always felt money does not blow my skirt up. And it's very easy for me to say that because I've always earned money, although I've always earned my own money. You know, I was self supporting from a similar age to you. So it's not been a luxury. No one gave me loads of money. I earned everything I've got but it doesn't as it, in, in as a concept it really doesn't matter to me i always say to my kids not having enough money will make you unhappy but no amount of money will make you happy and there's a big difference but what does money mean to you then nowadays
0: um it means that i've got freedom of choice we talked about freedom earlier i can do what i want to do i can make decisions um not based around you know like, okay i need the, you know, i need the money therefore i've got to do that and it just gives me freedom. Um, you know, that's it, really. And you and and you know, right at the beginning of this podcast, we talked about the importance of freedom. When I went to boarding school, I just wanted freedom. I want to be able to choose whatever. If you I and I had to gone together, that.
1: we'd have been over the bloody fence, setting up a <laughs> stall to pay for us to go into railing, even if we were seven. <laughs> we'd have been selling seashells. I, sea I, was, I a bet profit. you were doing that because I was
0: doing that with Arabella. <laughs> yeah,
1: I was doing. Uh, yeah, I didn't even have any friends. I was doing it on my own. I was, you know, a fat ginger kid with glasses in a boys' school. I didn't have any friends, um, and it' Teacher's kid. Is um I just want to ask you about strictly before I ask you the three questions, I ask everyone. So one of the things that also struck me on your brilliant Desert Islands disc, which we'll put um discs, which we'll put a link to in the show notes, was the sort of sheer joy uh, that you have for life, for travel and for dancing. And obviously, we saw you just wonderful. I mean, yeah, you on strictly like, 10 years ago now was just incredible um anyone who wants to feel good just put on your cha-cha-cha to respect on Strictly and I guarantee <laughs> it's 90 <laughs> seconds that'll make you feel better than having a you know glass of Prosecco but what well, your dance but it isn't just Strictly didn't make you like dancing you loved dancing from the get-go it was that way round, right
0: Yes, but but I mean, there's a big difference between dancing at weddings
1: <laughs> and strictly.
0: But yes, I've always loved music, and I've always liked to move. You know, I find it hard to to listen to music without moving to it. So, um, so I knew I knew that I was going to enjoy that side of it. But I mean, my goodness, <laughs> strictly is a whole different ball game.
1: It must be the absolute. It's the one. My kids. I think it would just. That would be it for them. If I managed to get, they would. If I get asked to, I think I would have to say yes because they'd never forgive me for not.
0: You would. Well, you should say yes because it is the most joyous thing. I've been dancing today.
1: And so you don't. I always joke that um, I haven't got time to do Strictly because I haven't got time to do the dancing and to have the affair. But that's obviously a joke because you're with your lovely husband, Paul, and you did not have an affair with Robin. Um, So, um, but is it, yeah, I mean, a friend of mine did the Irish one. My friend Neil Delamere um, did the Irish version and I was so excited. He was the person I've known the best who's ever done it. And I was more excited about it than he was, than his wife was. Like He was sending me, he was FaceTiming me from his rehearsals. I love, but is it the most incredible? uplifting life-changing experience is
0: it amazing I I'm not sure it's life-changing I think um I so it was it was the most joyous experience it's very rare in life where you honestly feel that everybody around you wants you to be your absolute best because you've always got Somebody who doesn't want you to be your absolute best strictly is genuinely as lovely as you think. Everybody is is rooting for you. If that audience could pick you up and carry you around that dance floor, they absolutely would. So it's the most joyous thing I've ever done. I say I don't think it's life changing um, because it is a moment in time. And I wouldn't. I, I, I get. I would rail against thinking that something like that would fundamentally change me, because I, I'd hate to think that I I was that. Um, shall I don't know. Shall I don't know. Yeah, that anchor that you need yeah. that to take you. It was. Yeah. It, it, it was. It was awesome. I tell you, the only thing it did do, not the only thing it did, many things, but one of the lovely things it did is is it convinced Paul to take up dancing lessons and we still dance I dance today um we do we do Argentine tango and I dance today for an hour so um that is that was lovely that was
1: and that's still that's still with us but still not Mm -hmm. as life-changing as meeting Paul I imagine so meeting the man you now dance with probably changed his life changed (laughs) his life (laughs) for sure (laughs) that's anyone listening to that knows that so you still dance which is the most joy and it yeah it's it's um yeah, it, it's something that you can't really do if you're awake at the wheel, can you? you just have to surrender to it and get on with it and let your, and not get in your own way. Uh, so, yeah, well, if I get offered strictly, uh, I'm going to do it. Absolutely. But let's no. not hold our breath. Namaste, motherfuckers! And in terms of your... I mean, what, there's so many things to pick from your incredible life to date, but if you had to pick your life-changing namaste motherfucking moment, Deborah, which would you pick...
0: Mm-hmm. I see that I find really hard in my business life because um, I've got thousands of them and I don't remember any of them. Um, but but we, we Paul and I used to travel a lot, and I might have misunderstood the question. But I um, I was I was trying to decide whether it was being caught in a military coup in Argentina. And having to jump into the back of a cab, bribe a taxi driver to jump us in the back of a cab and get us out of the airport because it was surrounded by soldiers, um, which uh, which was a quite a moment, <laughs> quite a moment. Um, or whether it was when I w- we were out trying to tranquilize an elephant that had been shot in Kenya, and uh, and the Land Rover literally the driver turned to me and said we, we were right on the edge of a precipice on a on a, a cliff edge and uh, and the land Rover tipped and he said we're going over and uh and and they, it was it was it was absolutely staggering we, we didn't obviously go over um because all of the guys in the back of the land Rover including Paul my husband had the sense to sort of lean out as if they were on a yacht you know lean back so to, so we could get the land rover um back onto firm ground um, but it was really interesting because you never know how you're going to be in those situations you are you know I think would I be a panicker um but this guy literally turned to me said I think we're going over and I just said okay what what do I do he just said because we had a tranquilizer gun in there he said just just put the gun hold take hold the gun away from you um and and it was all very
1: calm (laughs) it was all right oh we're going over (laughs) In slow motion, with and and you were out tranquilized. What what were you doing out there in the first place? I mean, you had a tranquilizer gun. You, why were you you were in Kenya? Why was I there? So I'm a trustee of a charity called Tusk that's
0: an African wildlife conservation charity. I was visiting some of the projects, and we got a call in saying um the only way we could get around was by helicopter because we were right up on the northern rangelands um and we got a call in saying there was an elephant that had been shot and it was it was called mountain bull a very famous elephant very important elephant in terms of its grazing patterns and and trying to um create grazing corridors and uh could they borrow our helicopter so to, to um uh try to herd him and uh, tranquilize him and pump some antibiotics into him, which of course we said, yes. So we happened to be caught up in this whole thing. But as we landed, I I jumped in the Land Rover with a guy who was tranquilized, who had the tranquilizer gun. Um, and all of the guys, the other guy, you know, including Paul jumped to the back. So I was in the cabin with the driver, and all the guys were uh, sitting in the back. And as I say, if it hadn't been for them, it was interesting actually. That's <laughs> no a test name. of a marriage, isn't it? If you're like, you you lent the wrong way, you
1: dickhead. Well it, they, it, well, it was
0: very interesting because there were five or six people in the back, one of them jumped out, and the others stayed on board and lent out. And I just thought it was a really interesting. Lesson in what happens when the chips are down, and you genuinely think that's it. And one of them had jumped
1: off, but not your pool, not my pole. No. no. And you couldn't jump out because you were in the front, so we I don't know what would happen. You... <laughs> yeah, exactly. You were literally at so the front. I of. don't
0: know if that was what, what you were looking for yeah. in a moment. but I'd uh... say
1: that's pretty goosebumpy as a moment. <laughs> what how, how did it play out for the elephant? That well, I'm sorry you asked. So it, so it
0: played out well in that instance. He was tranquilized, pumped full of antibiotics. And live for another three years, and then I got a call saying you probably um, would want to know, Deborah, that Mountain Bull was poached.
1: Oh, goodness. Um, yeah,
0: and he was a magnificent,
1: huge tusker. So wow. yeah my son if he listens back to this which is very unlikely uh, because he obviously doesn't listen to the things I do he's a zookeeper and works a lot in conservation so he will oh, he right. would kick me for asking that question because he would have well he might know about it he was quite a famous elephant he would know the answer for sure now that's an incredible story just to circle back quickly on the um, the coup that was um, you weren't saving animals out in Argentina was that more of a pleasure trip where you got caught up in a coup at the airport that was a, back, a semi backpacky
0: pick uh, t- a trip and um, Buenos Aires is the uh, so it's so Argentina operates a hub so everything goes back by Buenos Aires and we literally um, I we were down in where were we Iguasi Falls and we were going down to um, watch whales down on the um, uh, peninsula, the Valdez Peninsula and uh, and we literally landed, checked our baggage in and then all of these army helicopters um landed and we thought oh no 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 no, that's not good. Um, and it was a military coup by one of the generals. This is quite a while ago. So one of the generals from the Falkland Islands, um, from the conflict. And we just thought, you know what, being English in this airport right mm. now is probably not a good idea. So we bribed a taxi driver. And we literally were hunkered down in the back of
1: his cab, sort of shooting through the roadblocks. So uh, that was quite a hairy moment blimey I thought you might have been over there learning how to do the actual cha-cha-cha um, over or doing the tango I thought you might have been part of your strictly dance training but no oh, it no, was no. that was that was, that was many years ago
0: I think they stopped having they were having them they were having coups regularly to be honest um, but we didn't know that and and also now it was it was all fine but of course in the time you don't actually know how it's going to unfold now, of course you, know, you don't
1: what? yeah that the the folly also the folly of sort of relative youth where you just think you are invincible and then you get yeah. into these scenarios and think oh maybe maybe I'm not um and you sound like you Love tra- do you still travel, Deborah? Do you still do lots of travel? We do. I mean, I've got a bit of a conflict because
0: um, we used to travel an awful lot, but I've got a bit of a conflict because I won't footprint. take too- yeah. that many long-haul flights. Yeah, We haven't taken a long haul for about six years mm. now. We're going to. We're going to Antarctica this year. Um, next next winter we're going to Antarctica but I'm
1: rationing my uh my long haul flights maybe get the BBC to invest in sort of the Deborah Meadon's version of pole to pole and get you by as much as they possibly can across land around the world. That'd be a good show. I'd watch it. And um and what is your favorite joke? I haven't oh I that is like the worst thing because I can't remember
0: jokes at all. You and, and me I both Deborah I can't which is a
1: problem in my industry.
0: I know. I can't tell <laughs> you. And, I, and actually, I do, I don't really. Okay, I'm going to say something that I don't really like. I I I. When somebody starts telling me a joke, I'm going, oh please, please think it's funny, Deborah. Please think it's funny. It's high pressure.
1: Yeah, it's high pressure scenario. Oh,
0: I, I um. So I'm 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 more of an observational humor. You know, I like I, I like. I said I was watching you in QI the other day, and which was and it was an absolutely brilliant episode. Oh, thank you. I haven't. I never watched them back. but um, Well, it was brilliant. It oh. was. It had us bellyache laughing, but it's it's ob- it's chatty and observational. And that's the stuff that makes me laugh. It's when it goes somewhere. But when somebody starts telling me a joke, there is one joke and I can't tell it. And I hope you know it because I don't think I can even describe the joke, but it's a friend of mine. And the reason I like it is it's clever. It's long and it's clever. And um, and it has got it's got a good punchline, but it isn't just the punchline that makes it funny. And it's 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 a joke about a bear in a bar and barbiturates. Do you know it? I don't know it. No. Uh, and it's an alliterative joke. So it's sort of, you know, bear goes into the bar and asks for a pint and, and the barman says, you know, we're not serving a bear in a bar um and then the uh, um he says why not um if you don't serve me i'm going to biff you he said well i'm certainly not serving a bear in a bar that's going to biff the barman you know so and it grows and grows and grows and and uh and anyway i can't tell jokes but that's my joke you see you had me with a bit of
1: initial momentum i was like she's going to tell a joke and it's going to be good well (laughs) i'm going to find the joke and i'm going to get producer mike to tell the joke
0: hello podcast penance it's producer mike here. I thought I'd mansplain the joke that Callie and Deborah, between them, didn't manage to tell. Here it is. A bear
1: walks into a bar. Sorry, we don't serve bears in here, the barman says. But I'm a big brown bear. Sorry, we don't serve big brown bears. The bear is angry and hits the bar with his claws. Give me a beer now. Sorry, we don't serve bar bashing big brown bears. The bear picks up a bar stool and smashes it against the ground. I want a beer. Sorry, we don't serve stool breaking bar-bashing big brown bears here. The bear is getting angry and takes a bite from the counter. Give me a beer. Sorry, we don't serve drug addicts either. The bear is confused. I've never touched a drug in my life. Well, what about the barbiturate? Classic. Well, that one is definitely going in this year's Christmas cracker, motherfuckers. Uh, by the way comedians hate this question every comedian you say what's your favorite joke we all go we don't tell jokes which is alarming for the fee-paying public but um yes and if, if you were to give one bit of life advice deborah to anybody listening what would it be oh just work out what matters
0: just work out what matters you know we 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 spend way too long on stuff that just doesn't matter and and it's what matters is different for everybody but just make sure you know what it is. Otherwise, one day you wake up and think, I don't really know what I care about. I don't really know what I do. I don't really know what I love. Work out
1: what matters. That was Deborah Meaden. We've put a link to Deborah's Desert Island Discs in the show notes, as well as one to Tusk, the charity protecting wildlife, alleviating poverty and promoting education across Africa, of which Deborah is a trustee and which led her to be a part of one of the rescue missions of Mountain Bull. And that is it for this week. What a fantastic conversation with Deborah. Thank you so much for listening. Please do remember, um, especially if you're new to the podcast, I know we've had lots of attention around this episode, do rate us, review us, recommend us so new people keep finding us. And we will be back in your feed next Thursday, as always, when I will be talking to the brilliant Kirsty Walk.
0: I love arts, I love music, I love interiors, you know, as well as how much I love using counterfeeds.
1: Namaste Motherfuckers was written and presented by me, Callie Beaton, and produced by Mike Hanson and Karusha Dami for Pod People Productions with music by Jake Yap. I'm Callie Beaton. Until next time, Motherfuckers. (laughs)
0: Join the revolution, fuck it.
1: I was getting really frustrated with life. Everyone has a fuck it button, but no two fuck it buttons are the same. The thing is, my fuck it button comes up every time that I work. I just felt really, like, energised. My
0: name's Zoe Lem, and this is The Fuck It Button, the new podcast from Pod People Productions. Join me as I talk to people from all walks of life about when they have would, could or should press their fuck it button. Whether it's driven by trauma, stress, boredom, or life events. How they feel about it now, and the impacts of others
1: around them. But now I've come out of it, you know, I'm really on the other side of it. I have found that
0: empowering. The fuck it button is coming soon to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favourite shows.